1: Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best.
0: You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing.
1: Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik.
2: And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. So, the day after the Prime Minister had another child, uh, Boris Johnson is in fact back at work pretty much today. He's going to be uh, hosting the re- review, the daily review that the government gives about what's going on in terms of the virus. He'll be updating the country on the fight and the steps to defeat coronavirus. And that all comes as the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies continues its work on a range of options for easing the The lockdown restrictions. So, Seb, do you think we're going to get a, a full list?
1: Oh, it's sounding unlikely, isn't it? Uh, I mean, that's certainly what's being reported in most of the papers today. We're getting that review, remember, on May the 7th. um, And and that's, again, when we expect not a whole lot to change. At the same time, number 10, facing the deadline for its target of 100,000 daily virus tests. The deadline for that is uh, pretty much today. So uh, Health Secretary Matt Hancock pledging to reach the goal by the end of uh, April. We're at the 30th today. The latest figures show it reached just 52,000 coronavirus tests on tuesday as of 5 p.m so just over halfway towards that goal let's get into all of this joining us now is emma lewbuck labour mp for south shields uh emma i suppose let's let's start with that test um or, or that goal rather matt Hancock saying he would reach that hundred thousand he's clearly by the looks of it going to fall short uh, do, do you think that he should resign over this
3: I think there's a lot of questions to be asked of ministers and secretaries of state right now. I mean, all of this goes back to around transparency, tone and trust. Every day we're seeing ministers stand at podiums, congratulate themselves on their achievements, while thousands are dying. We've just had the Justice Secretary on this morning saying that the direction of travel is more important than actually meeting this milestone. The public, and I know I am, sick of of this type of response from ministers. There's no explanation yet again of why this target's not being reached or what the difficulties actually are in meeting this target. We need to have some honesty and humility and the government need to charge treating us with some respect. The time is now for somber and serious leadership and some transparency and we're not getting that.
2: Okay well what do you want to hear? What are the kind of things? I mean do you want a, a list of ways in which the lockdown could be lifted? Would that be, would that be a way forward?
3: Look, I think the government from the outset were far too slow for lockdown, they were far too slow on PPE and they're far too slow on testing. And what they need to start doing is coming to the podium for the daily briefings and holding their hands up and being honest about the challenges that are facing them and facing the country instead of this congratulatory, we've achieved this, we've achieved that. You know, Matt Hancock was talking about how brilliant it was that NHS Nightingale Hospitals opened very swiftly. Well, if the government had acted quicker in the first place, we wouldn't need those Nightingale Hospitals. I want our government to start treating us with some respect and start being honest with us about what is happening. And I do not say...
1: how the the government... To be fair, those 90-year hospitals are barely being used, so there's all of that excess that hasn't been required. If you look at the polls, people seem pretty okay, pretty supportive of the government at the moment.
3: Well, I don't think... That's not what I'm hearing. You know, I've... I talk to my constituents every single day and I'm hearing a lot of anger, especially from friends and colleagues of mine who work in the NHS frontline, members of my family who are risking their lives every single day without the correct PPE equipment and that is a direct failure of our government. In February, we knew what was happening across Europe yet we didn't propose lockdown until late March. It's very clear now that the stockpiles of PPE were not there. People's lives are at risk and there needs to just be a bit more humility and a bit less of this congratulate return of we've hit this target we've done this and more around being honest with the public
2: all right well i mean let's let's move on to some sort of concrete things here because you've written i think a piece about the economy the way the economy (laughs) Mm -hmm. works and how it should work and what might change could just outline what what it is you're suggesting Mm -hmm.
3: I mean, ultimately, I think what this has shown us is that for too long in our country, the, the, there's been a skewed vision of who we should value and, you know, who who it is that matters the most. And what this has shown is that the likes of myself, what matters the most is those key workers that keep our country running day in and day out. Those people who have been badly affected by austerity are the very ones who are keeping us going right now. So it needs a radical rethink of what it is we value. Do you not think we're seeing that sea
1: change already? Do you not think we're seeing that sea change already in the attitude towards the NHS and other key workers? You've got people applauding them on their doorsteps. You've got the government making very supportive noises. Well,
3: noises are great and claps are great, but that doesn't put money in people's pockets. It doesn't make them feel valued. In NHS frontline staff who don't have the correct equipment and are being sent to work and put at great risk would rather have the correct PPE equipment than have people clapping for them.
2: At the, in this point, then, are you saying, I mean, just to get again some details, are you thinking that we should restructure the pay, uh, the, the way these people are paid, the way uh, the, the, the kind of uh, security they have for their employment? I mean, in concrete terms, what would that involve?
3: I think it's exactly what you've just said there. And, you know, what this has proven is that there is the money there. The government does have the money there to allocate when it needs it. And this has proven that. And, you know, after this crisis, what we need is some investment straight away in our economy. We need a big housing. We need some transport infrastructure we need a big housing development we need research and development we're world leaders in technology why aren't we not investing more in that in my part of the world we have a history of making things in the northeast let's get back to doing some of that because that's what drives the economy
1: okay so in terms of where we are now uh, granted the government perhaps was slow on certain issues but we are where we are what does (coughs) number 10 do from here what are the priorities to get this lockdown and also to get the economy going again
3: I suppose it goes back to what I've just said. We need some investment in transport infrastructure and housing, research and development technology and get us back, get the economy back moving again. But for the short term, what we need is for the government to start being honest about the challenges that they are facing and start owning up to the mistakes that they've made and show a bit more humility.
1: And how does that translate into policy?
3: it translates into policy by them actually just doing that you know i mean i'm not i'm i'm a backbench mp so you know i don't have all the information in front of me that the government have in front of them but at the minute it just seems like there's a blank sheet of paper on the pm's desk saying how do we get out of this mess and there's nothing underneath it it doesn't seem to be any ideas coming forward there's just a lot of platitudes and a lot of targets that are being missed meanwhile people are dying
2: well let's talk about an area I know you, you have some experience of which is uh, in education because you were Shadow Education Minister mm. I think uh, uh, earlier in your in your Shadow career. Shadow
3: Children's Minister. Yeah. Shadow
2: Children's Minister but I mean that takes us to the yeah. heart of it doesn't it because education is a key issue at this point. How do you think, mm. when do you think schools should be reopened?
3: I mean I think schools should be reopened when it is only safe to do so and when the government have got a handle on some of their own five criteria that needs to be met. You know, they've said the lockdown won't won't lift until they've got the infection rate to a manageable level. Well, they don't know that because they haven't got on top of testing. Or when they've made sure that, there's, that the daily death rates are fallen. well, they only started counting death rates in the community and in care homes just this week. So we're nowhere near the level where we can start lifting a lockdown and making sure that schools and other areas, other are, are, are people can go back to work. If it happens too soon, people are going to be put at risk. Teachers are going to be put at risk, children are, and the wider community.
1: Uh, Emma, one thing that caught my eye was Robert Halfon's idea for a volunteer army of retired teachers, graduates, to tutor these disadvantaged children, try and close this gap and help them catch up. Is that something you'd support?
3: Was he seeing that, doing that remotely, or...?
1: Uh, I'm not sure of the details, but it was certainly an idea to to use recent graduates who are are going to be looking for jobs in this sort of economy and, and to give them something concrete to do and to help the children at the same time.
3: I mean, at the moment, I'm aware that a lot of teachers are sending lessons through on laptops and iPads. And again, the government has said that they're providing disadvantaged pupils with that, but they're not providing them with that. There's pupils in my constituency who don't have that and again it goes back to just all these promises that they're making very often what we're hearing from ministers is not translating into the reality on the ground
2: emma what about a catch-up premium what about something that says look the the burden of this has fallen on very disadvantaged children particularly Mm. in areas like your own and that actually some sort of catch-up premium in terms of funding their education is needed to get the balance back together after all this?
3: Well, I signed a letter just this week cross-party with other MPs and a group of peers asking for that very thing, a catch-up premium for those children who are on free school meals, because already the gap has widened between those in the north and in the south, and this pandemic is only going to exacerbate that. So we've already requested that catch-up premium from the government.
1: Okay, and finally just looking at um, at Parliament we've got uh, no one sitting today but it's sort of a slow Mm -hmm. process we're moving towards voting just generally how has it worked for you and and do you think we're going to reach a phase where we're going to be able to have votes and some degree of normalcy around what we saw before when we were when you were meeting physically
3: i mean i know the house is working really hard to get us to do voting remotely And so far, I've put in for pretty much every question time and every debate in the virtual parliament, but it is really strict around how many people are allowed to intervene. And it's really frustrating that I've not been able to be the voice of my constituents in parliament. And a lot of us, the best we can do at the moment is to raise things in the media or to send round letters to ministers and secretaries of state. And that's not the best way for our democracy to function. So, you know, I'm, I'm keen for us to get back to Parliament, get back to voting and make sure that we are holding the government to account that democracy is functioning properly. But right now, I understand that that is impossible. I'm hoping maybe that the House can extend the sitting days to Thursdays and Fridays, maybe. But I know they're working really hard on that at the moment. And it's Um, just a, a case of waiting to see how that develops.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot
1: com. Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And Roger, we're starting across the pond. Yes, indeed. The the US, uh, well, they're talking about pushing towards a
2: vaccine, a bit of a Bloomberg scoop, in fact. The Trump administration's organising what they call a Manhattan Project style effort, of course, referring to the development of the atomic bomb in the Second World War, to drastically cut the time needed to develop a coronavirus vaccine. The goal is to make enough doses for most Americans by the end of the year. They're calling it Operation Warp Speed. Sources say the programme will pull together private pharmaceutical companies, government agencies and the military to try and cut Cut the development time for a vaccine by as much as eight months. And all this comes as the US government has said early results of a trial of the COVID-19 therapy, severe is offering, well,
1: apparently good news. And then closer to home, Labour leader Keir Starmer is going to hold virtual meetings with the public in every region in a bid to help the party recover from its historic electoral defeat. It's all about reaching out to the red wall, the blue wall, whatever you want to call it, all of the people who used to vote Labour and try and get them to come back and offer something fresh. He's called it Call Keir and he's today going to start the first hour-long discussion, it's going to be via Zoom of course, uh, in Berry before talking to Tees Valley. Uh, They're going to open up to all members of the public and they're aimed at learning the lessons from December's general election. So Keir will also give the meeting's uh, to find about more about how people are coping with the coronavirus and to scrutinise the government's response. So a lot of uh, reaching out to the people at a time when we're all sat at home.
2: Well, yes, and as you say, you know, the, the impact of all this, and we're getting a slight picture of quite how grim the impact is. The Standard Life Foundation is reporting that households whose main income is from the gig economy are three, month, three times more likely to be in serious financial difficulty than anyone else. And uh, the Charitable Foundation says uh, it has a focus on improving the lives of people on low to middle incomes. It said 28% of Brits anticipate some fall in their income over the next three months, adding that people who live in a rented house, have disabilities or work in the private sector, are particularly at risk in all this.
1: Hmm, serious stuff. Now, I have a few more plastic bottles than I'd like piling up in my recycling uh, as i have under lockdown. It's almost hard to remember, but just a few months ago, we were all talking about the biggest threat to human life on the planet our own destruction of the environment the warming of the atmosphere the melting of the ice caps in fact it probably is still the most dangerous long-term threat to human life uh, compared to the coronavirus but of course we're focusing on the disease it's the main focus also of government policy so where does climate fit into all of this how should it stack up on the agenda well joining us now is someone who's been researching all this charlotte burns professor of politics and international relations at sheffield university Uh, so charlotte is this really the time to be discussing climate change given everything else on the agenda?
4: I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. On the one hand, one of the immediate impacts of the economic downturn is that we've seen emissions for greenhouse gas emissions, air quality emissions, which looks to be relatively beneficial. But I think one of the potential medium term impacts is that the political agenda will inevitably and understandably be taken up with how do we get the economy moving and the environment and climate change might well be crowded off that agenda, but, as you pointed out, this is an existential challenge that we need to be making we need to be taking seriously so It seems to me that certainly from work I've done previously, after you have an economic crisis, the environment tends to get squeezed off the policy agenda. And also what tends to happen is that all the focus goes on the economy and we'll see the emissions that have dropped just rebounding straight back up again. So it is something that we need to be considering and talking about, whilst also being aware that governments are inevitably going to want to be getting their economies moving and getting people back to work. So it is a genuine challenge.
2: Yeah, because I mean, I I suppose a lot of this is driven inevitably in political terms by the public mood and and, and coming up before we got into the the virus crisis. Of course, the public mood did seem to be building behind uh, taking the climate uh, action seriously. Uh, We saw, of course, the Greta Thunberg rally in Bristol, I remember. There was a lot of push in that direction. Is there a risk now that the public will back away from that? will say, hang on, that's not as important as just getting enough money to live on.
4: I mean, I think that is the risk, and history suggests that that is exactly what might happen. Last year was really quite noticeable for the amount of activism we saw. We saw the school strikes, we saw Extinction Rebellion garnering support. We saw um, the environment and Green parties featuring in elections, in the European elections and in the UK elections. You know, uh, 25% of the public consistently identified the environment as a top three issue for them in polling around the general election. Um, Unfortunately, what we tend to see during economic crises is is that the environment then just gets bumped off the agenda again. So I I would be unsurprised if we did polling later this year, if actually the environment doesn't really feature there. It would be interesting to see. Certainly, if you look at those polls, the people who identify the environment and climate as a major source of concern are younger generations. And I suppose they may carry on regarding this as as an issue of concern for them. Um, It's difficult to tell, but... Certainly, as I say, history suggests that the environment will get, will get bumped lower down the agenda and concerns around health and jobs will take precedence.
1: So, Charlotte, this is something we spoke to, um, to the Green Party MP, Caroline Lucas, about recently. And she said that we have to think of them in parallel and come up with uh, moves against the coronavirus that don't inhibit our treatment of the environment. And it raises the question, what are the opportunities here? What can we take from this experience in order to develop better environmental policy going ahead?
4: I mean, I think that's a really nice point, and there's been quite a lot of focus on this, that actually what this crisis has demonstrated is that communities can come together and work together effectively, that we can reorient priorities, um, and so that this could actually be a positive moment to think more carefully about how we're treating our environment, what we can do to change our behaviour. You know, a lot of people have shifted to working at home, which could potentially reduce emissions. So will we see more people choosing to work at home um, as we move out of the lockdown period so that that then has a positive knock-on effect
2: do you think that that is going to make a difference I mean, because we've, we've heard anecdotally of course that there's already an effect that the the skies are clearer that the uh, the world is a quieter place in some ways and that all these kind of aspects of people just doing less in the way which we have and that this is having an effect on the environment in concrete terms and people might wake up to that as being potentially advantageous going forward
4: I mean, this is a really interesting one, and I think it might end up cutting both ways. On the one hand, I think you're right. People are noticing that when they go out for walks, there seem to be more birds, the air is cleaner. There's definitely been positive impacts in terms of air quality across the world as industrial production has closed and people are driving less. However, the other potential reaction to this, is that when people do start to go back to work are they going to be willing to travel on public transport in the same way that they have previously or are they going to choose to drive because they don't want to be exposed to other people when catching trains or alternatively fewer people might be going to work because they choose to work at home it it could cut both ways I think it's quite difficult to tell at the moment so there could be some positive behaviour changes but there may also be some negative behaviour changes.
1: And is it possible to sort of tally that all up and work out if it's going to be a net positive or a net negative, or is that far too crude?
4: (laughs) I mean, I think it's a bit early to tell at the moment. I would like to say that it will be a net positive, that we've learned so much about how we can work together collaboratively, that there's a positive opportunity here. Having done quite a lot of studies of, of the impact of crises on environmental policy, I think I'm probably going to say that it might end up being a net negative, but I really hope I'm wrong on that.
2: That's interesting. What, why a negative? do you think do you think people will just revert to say well you know, environmentalism is only for times when we're prosperous. Is that the sense?
4: I mean I think I think it's less that people will say environmentalism is only for times when we're prosperous, but more that people's immediate priorities are going to be focused upon work, income, family, health and the environment just gets squeezed off the agenda equally the government's main priorities are going to be all those things as well and they you know the bandwidth for the environment i think will be much narrower than was the case you know in the last couple of years
1: well one thing we know is that we're going to take a pretty severe economic hit from this isn't that a case for uh, some sort of economic improvement i'm thinking about people flying less people traveling less people ordering less off amazon does that stuff add up and create some some sort of a benefit
4: I mean, potentially it could add up if people do change their behaviour, but again, I'm not, I'm not convinced that they will. Um, I'm not sure that the incentives will be there for them to change their behaviour over the medium term. So certainly over the next couple of years, I think we're likely to see fewer people taking flights. But once we get past this initial dip, I, I suspect we'll see people engaging in exactly the same kinds of behaviour and governments encouraging them to do that because they want to get economies moving. If you think about the number of jobs that... Um, are um, implicated in the airline industry, for example, and the impact on the communities who live around airports, that's going to be a key driver for governments when they're thinking about this.
2: Do you think possibly, you could say, well, we've we've encountered an existential threat, in effect, to, to, to humans on this planet, we're dealing with it, that might, politicians could use that and say, well, look, there are other existential threats, we just suddenly need to think about this in a different way, and having the virus actually maybe would help that.
4: I mean, absolutely. I think there is an opportunity here for politicians to do that, and there's certainly some politicians who will do that. I'm not convinced that our own government will do that. I certainly don't think Donald Trump's going to do that. I don't think Bolsonaro's going to do that. And that's one of the challenges. These are you know climate change is a global existential threat so we need all leaders to be thinking in the same way so whilst it's clear that some leaders and politicians and opinion shapers will be taking this opportunity unfortunately there are enough that won't that it may prevent us to change the way that we do business and the way that we operate as we emerge from the crisis
2: bloomberg westminster listen weekdays at noon on dab digital radio in london